listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Get 15% off any DIR 101 course and introduction to DIR and DIR floor time through ICDL.com by using the promo code AFFECTA15. That's A-F-F-E-C-T-A-1-5. I'm Daria Brown, and this week I have with me two DIR expert training leaders in Atlanta. Joan Fleckenstein is an occupational therapist, and Mike Fields is a licensed professional counselor. They are at Individual and Team Therapy Services, and we are here today to talk about Praxis. Now, I have a podcast on motor planning with occupational therapist Maud LaRue. It's quite a few years old now, the building blocks of motor planning. But Mike was our guest in ICDL's weekly parent support group that I facilitate, and the topic of praxis came up, motor planning, ideation, all this fun stuff. And we said, okay, let's get another take on this from you guys. And so Mike said, we need you on. So here we go. Uh, welcome, both of you. Welcome back, both of you. Thank Thanks. you. When we, when we think about praxis, it actually comes from the Greek meaning to do. And praxis is how we do everything from the most simple action of getting my mug and bringing it up to my mouth to drink to thinking through um, a challenging social scenario and figuring out what to do. Um, Praxis is involved in all of that. So when we see um, individuals who struggle with praxis, it impacts how they do anything novel, anything new. Um, So when we see a child or or an adult who is struggling to progress in their capacities, um, that adult that just gets stuck and can't pivot, can't change plans, um, where you see rigidity in thinking and rigidity in action um, and need for repetition um, or, nope, that's not the cup I use. I only use the green cup right? Um, Praxis can be involved because if we don't know how we get to our plan B, um, then we're going to avoid needing one in the first place. So the components of praxis are first ideation. We get an idea and it's it's a cyclical action, right? We get an idea, um, we um, make a plan or we sequence that um, how we're going to make something happen, we execute it and we get feedback on whether that plan worked. So the example I'll often use with parents and and um, clinicians is my idea is I want to make a cake. Now I make all of the cakes for the niece and nephews in my family. I love baking. I love decorating cakes. They come up with these elaborate ideas and I make a cake to match, right? Um so one time I, I was a particularly stressful week. I usually get my cake started on Thursday for a Saturday party. And I um, was at the grocery store on a Friday night. So tight deadline. I have my idea. I know exactly what aisle to go to. I know exactly what I need. And I'm going to turn around, get home and get baking. Well, I get to the grocery store. I walk to the door and I expect it to just open for me. And it doesn't open. And I think, well, that's weird. So I try to pull the door open and it doesn't open, right? My plan is not going to work. The power had gone out in the grocery store, so they weren't able to sell anything. So then I was faced with the decision. 
do I keep going with my plan? Do I break the doors down, go get my items, check myself out and leave? Do I abandon my idea? Forget it. Kids getting a store-bought cake this year. I'll pick something up in the morning. Or do I change my plan and go to the grocery store just down the street? And in that moment, of course, I made the decision, well, poop, all right, I guess I can't go to this grocery store. I'll go to this unfamiliar grocery store. It's going to be a little bit more uncomfortable, but I'll figure it out. I'll get what I need. I'll be delayed. I'll just have to stay up later or get up earlier and I'll make it happen. And I did. And I made the cake happen. For so many of our clients, they get to the doors, the doors are shut and they plow their way through or they sit on the curb and say, now I'll never, ever, ever make a cake again for the rest of my entire life because they're not able to pivot. They're not able to develop another plan. If the scenario that they know doesn't go the way they expect, they have no way to repair. So I got interested in the idea of praxis and its impact across all of development. Because praxis is like, if you think of the developmental pyramid, it's it's a vein that runs all the way up through the developmental pyramid. Um, and I started wondering and asking questions and reading about Praxis because I worked with the coolest kid um, starting at three years old who had a spinal cord injury. It should not have affected his thinking, right? It was um, not his central nervous system. There was no brain involvement. It was his peripheral nervous system. Should have been fine right? His thinking and reasoning and, and motor planning and problem solving should have been okay. But he had the spinal cord injury from birth and he had never had to motor plan. Someone had always moved his body. So the way it presented was um, socially. I He wanted a friend to do, or his little brother especially, to um, do something in a specific way. And his brother, being a little brother, didn't want to and ran off and did it a different way. And he could not recover. If things were not exactly the way he expected, he couldn't do it. Thankfully, we were able to work on praxis because he did have some motor, um, early praxis, some motor planning and praxis. He did have some movement in his extremities. And so we did a lot of yeah, you want that thing and it's three feet away. That's really hard. All right, how are we gonna do this? Uh, and we started with him telling me the plan, coming up with the plan and me working it out and then him doing the action. And gradually as that praxis started to lay the groundwork for more complex social praxis later, all those pieces started to fall into place. And I thought, aha, there's something here. There's something to, if a kid can't do the things that they need to do from the most basic motor, then they won't be able to do in the most complex social. Yeah, and that's why when we talked about it in the in the parent support group, why I wanted to bring Joanne in. Remember, Daria, you said, hey, we need to talk about praxis. And I said, if you really want to do that, we got to bring 
Joanne, in because as a mental health practitioner, um, I deal with practice of ideas and emotions. And like Joanne's pointing out, you know, if you think developmentally, um, just regulation, being engaged, reciprocity, that all comes before social problem solving, which is even more tricky than just plain simple motor planning. But when you're working in that physical motor space, you get immediate feedback if your plan is working or not. Um, and you don't get that when you're trying to figure out why is somebody mad at you. You can't pick up pieces and move them around and see how to solve the problem. It's all um, abstract. So from a developmental standpoint, we have to be able to have that experience first. So I still feel 99. I have a trouble. I have a problem with absolutes, but almost everybody I see, I haven't run into the exception yet, I think should see an OT just to get a better understanding of how their body works and to have somebody who really understands praxis motor planning at a foundational level um, so that we can get that in place to build the more abstract things on or else it's just a tower of cards with a simple breeze that'll knock it over so um my i think my part in this is going to be easy today i just let john go and then maybe add a little bit uh, on top using the cake metaphor which i love yeah I love cake. Layer cakes, you know, we want a big layer at the bottom so we can stack higher on top of it. Um, or you're really making the cake and I'm just doing the icing on top. Mm. Oversimplification, but um, really neat idea that like John pointed out, it goes through that praxis idea goes through everything we do. So let me paraphrase what I understood from what you guys said to make sure the listeners also are following what we're saying. Praxis is involved in everything we do. It's about having an idea of what we want to do, carrying out that idea and getting that feedback. And if that idea doesn't work, can we pivot and adjust to make that idea happen? And you're saying that in early development, when kids move, when they start to crawl, et cetera, in the physical space, you're getting feedback. But you and and that lays the groundwork for motor planning and praxis that you need to then develop praxis in the social realm, which I think a lot of adults even struggle with. And, and uh, I'll be one of those. Uh, like Mike said, <laughs> Mike too, if someone's mad at you, there's not a clear reason why necessarily it could be. It. So how do you navigate that and figure that out? And if I have an idea that I want to make a plan with this person and talk to them and do something, and then I find out they're mad at me, how do I go about navigating that? And all of these kinds of social situations that we'll eventually find ourselves in, this is what we want to work on with our kids who are on the spectrum or not, but uh, in DIR floor time, we tend to talk about kids who are having um, developmental differences and often have diagnosis um, of autism. So 
Um, this is interesting for me, and I liked that you started with the example of the child who had a spinal cord injury, and because they weren't able to move and someone was always moving them, that they never developed that motor, uh, physical movement, praxis skill, and you had to go back and start on that. And the other thing I heard you guys say is that you can work on praxis. Because I have heard um, the term dyspraxia and, oh, people who can't ever learn to drive, people who can't ever figure out how to do things without having a list of steps of what to do in front of them. And you're saying, well, you can work on it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's just part of neuroplasticity, right? So brain is incredibly moldable. Um, and I remember when I was going through OT school and, and early in my career, when I worked with adults, um, I would hear so often from, from physicians, um, you know, if whatever they get in the first six months after a stroke is as good as it's going to get. Uh, and I remember thinking that just doesn't seem right, right? That's not, that doesn't seem how the brain works, um, because if we can overcome other things, if we can lose a limb and readjust, then certainly the brain has power, more power than we might expect. And um, one of my favorite clients when I worked in a nursing home uh, was a youngish man. He was in his 50s, which is very young for a nursing home, right? Uh, he was almost 60. And um, he had had a stroke, a hemorrhagic stroke. Um, and he was three years status post-stroke. And he would come at the end of the day and hang out with me while I did my notes. And we'd just chitty chat back and forth. And um, one day he came and said, Joanne, I can move my toes. And I said, oh, really? And uh, on his affected side, he said, I, I can really move my toes. I said, okay, so show me. <laughs> sure enough, he can move his toes. And I said, okay. I'm going to let the physical therapist know, physical therapist. I said, Hey, he's moving his toes. And he said, eh, three years after a stroke, like, let me know if he can move his ankle. Well, he would come and hang out with me and wiggle his toes while I did my paperwork and we'd chitty chat. And, and sure enough, that ankle started moving. I said, all right, it's time. And this uh, man was able to get up, um, start to transfer on his own um, and move his body was able to actually go and live in um, in a independent-ish living situation, um, the brain can do amazing things. So always, there's always a way. Sometimes there, there might be more compensatory strategies when we're working with adults who's, um, um, like my husband likes to say, my wires are set in resin. Um, so if their wires are set in, in resin a little bit, then it might we might do more compensatory strategies. But there are pathways forward. And and, you know, a lot of times with the kids, if we get those bodies moving and we get them um, motor planning and we get them really playing, um, all of those pieces start to just fall into place. And I think this kind of goes to the heart of floor time, too, that shift to potential and hope. We don't know what what the future holds, right? And that's part of praxis, mm -hmm. not being able to predict. Um, we have some understanding, some control, and that's how we find 
safety and comfort. Um, but I mean, even back to uh, Dr. Greenspan's, okay, if Amanda Creek, Dr. Amanda Kriegel hears this, she's going to run down and smack me. Um, the affect diathesis hypothesis, speak English, Mike. Um, so the whole foundation for floor time is that our feelings move us literally um, to connect. And so from, I remember uh, Dr. T. Barry Brazelton at a conference one time was talking about baby is born. He would take the baby and he would hold it out to the, the mom and say, say your baby's name. And when the mom said the baby's name, he would just gently turn the baby's head towards mom and said, see, they're already responding to you. Um, but that does start to happen, right? Babies cry and they realize that, oh, when I cry, the face, magic face appears over the crib. So I'm going to look that direction or I feel a touch or I hear a sound. And so they're starting to problem solve and figure and, and motor plan, even at just uh, from P Piaget's standpoint, developmentally, it's, you know, the idea is the movement. It's not that a baby is thinking, oh, I want to do this and I'm going to reach out over here. No, it's that feeling literally causes us to reach, to move, to try and get something accomplished. And then as our wants and needs um, get more and more complicated, we have to have more and more sophisticated plans for that. So, I mean, this is the heart of floor time, the potential and that these things can happen and that we're, we're wired that way, we're designed that way and we can focus on that and promote uh, new connections. Well, and I think it's important for us to recognize, I love that Praxis has its own section in terms of our individual differences. When we look at like the capacity worksheet or, or any of um, when we're discussing individual differences, because a child who doesn't have um, the ability to move, whether it be because of low muscle tone um, cerebral palsy, right? Any number of, of reasons, or they're rigid because of reflux, they're not going to move, right? And therefore that limits their opportunities to connect and to engage, um, which when you are a parent with a baby who can't connect with you, you can keep trying for only so long and then you start to disconnect. Uh, I remember Andy, and Andy has given me permission to talk about him. Okay. Um, I remember Andy had just horrible colic and reflux, and those early days were just, okay, just, just keep the baby alive, just, just make it through, keep the baby alive, make it through, and and it was hard to parent a baby that um, couldn't be held who was in so much discomfort and it made it that much harder. It meant that I had to work that much harder to keep my availability going, right? Um, so so truly when, when there is a hiccup in any of those individual differences for a variety of reasons, it just makes it that much harder to get to that next capacity. And I will specify for listeners, they've mentioned the word capacity a number of times. We're talking about the development, functional, emotional, 
developmental capacities in the DIR floor time model, developmental individual differences relationship-based model of Dr. Greenspan. And um, the first capacity being regulation, Mike went through them earlier, then you know, engagement, reciprocity, back and forth, circles of communication, getting into shared problem solving, et cetera. So these are the developmental capacities that we talk about in the DIR model. And um, they're saying that, you know, to when we when practitioners get a client or when parents are are doing floor time with their child, we're always looking at where are they developmentally in those uh, functional, emotional, developmental capacities. We're looking at their individual differences and we're using the relationship and tailoring our affect and attunement and everything to the child. So I just wanted to specify that in case anybody new is listening. <laughs> One of my favorite games to play with kids, especially if I have suspicion of challenges with Praxis, because um, our evaluation here at ITS and, and it's across the board, all of our evaluations are play-based. So the kids who finish up an evaluation with us leave saying, when can I come back? <laughs> Right. Um, because it's it should be a joyful, fun experience. So we've had to get really nimble with what activities we offer so that we see everything that we need to see um, and sneak in that standardized testing the, the best way we can and still make it fun. Um, but often uh, with an older child, I'll offer the floor is lava as a game. And the way we play the floor is lava here is we've got a big, tall wooden tower. And all the way across the room is a trampoline. And I'll say to them, and we have a, a ninja line that spans the ceiling. Um, and you can theoretically get from the tower to the trampoline with the ninja line. Not particularly safe, but you could theoretically do it. Um, and I'll give the kids five objects and say, these five things are not lava. And when I do, I offer them enough things that they barely have to work to get across the room. And they make it there, they make it back to the trampoline. And I say, fantastic, you did it. Now the lava's rising. Well, what kind of what kind of things do you give them? What are like the five? Oh, things? yeah, the five things. Um, usually I'll give them a blanket that's folded up teeny tiny. Um, I'll give them a, a bolster that's a little bit wobbly, um, but you can kind of inch across. Um, What's a bolster? A bolster is like a big foam tube. Okay. So it's wibble wobbly, but you can make it across. You can stand on it, walk across, or you can kind of hug it and make it across. It and looks kind of like a smaller punching bag, but more firm. More firm. Yep. And on the floor sideways usually. Um, and then I'll give them, you know, a couple stepping stone type um, objects that are just the the possibilities of what you can use that for is one thing. There's no, only one way to really use that in terms of florist lava. And they will make their way there and across. And then I will take away one of the easy pieces and say, okay, the lava's turned off. Lava monsters are gone. Lava's turned off. Reorganize this so you can still make it across. And we keep going until most of the time I'll leave the blanket for last. Um, and the what I'm looking for is, does the child consider using the bolster in more than one way, right? Do they, um, do they adjust their plan at all? Or do they just use all their might to bulldoze their way through? 
Um, do they look at it and say, I can't do that, right? There's so many reactions we can get. Uh, and if we get all the way down to the blanket and they haven't unfolded the blanket, I will sometimes stop and pick up the blanket and shake it out and then fold just to show how big it is and fold it back up, right? And put it back on the floor and say, huh, I wonder how you're gonna do this. Um, and are they able to recognize that as, as a cue, right? Would that even enter their mind? Are they able to be, um, to turn ideas around in their head? And if they're not, okay. That tells me where we are and what we can do to support um, the development of those skills. And so often at the evaluation, you know, the kid will, uh, what, what I see most often in kids who are coming to see me is that um, by the time I've taken away two things, they're done with the game. They don't want to play this anymore because they don't think they can do it. And this game is over. Let's play something else, right? Um with my littler kids, we'll sometimes play a round of hide and seek because I want to see what happens if I give them plenty of space to hide. Um, what's their planning like? What's their sequencing like? What's their perspective taking like? Um, can they um, anticipate that I'm going to probably look in the exact same place if, that they hid the last time? That's going to be the first place I look. Um, do they know where their body begins and ends so that they know if they're completely hidden? Um, can they anticipate um, how much time they have left, right? All of these components of, of praxis, um, understanding someone else's perspective, right? Is the ability to, to abstractly turn those ideas around in our mind. Um, and that gives us a lot of information on, on how a child is doing. Um, it also gives us the opportunity with both hide and seek and floor is lava. We can um, check robustness um, for like tolerating a range of affect states can make that lava really scary. And I can say there's lava monsters coming and oh my, don't touch it. Maybe we can ramp up that intensity or with hide and seek, you know, I can um, wait and let them sit in that hiding spot waiting to be discovered. And is anybody gonna come for me or am I lost for forever? So we're able to, to see in real time how a child um, does everything that they need to do from walking across the room to get into a hiding place to um, turning those ideas around in their mind. And that gives us a foundation for um, where we can offer some more stability and some more growth and some more brain development so that when they we start looking at um, capacity for shared social problem solving, we have some nice foundational skills. If we don't have good foundations in praxis, Shared social problem solving is just not going to be available because there's no groundwork for turning ideas around in your mind. Um, so you just can't do it. There is no negotiation because there's no flexibility there. And I think that your example brings up a couple of really important things about praxis um, is, you know, a, a lot of people will ask, well, how do you teach that? So what makes something praxis is that it's unique. 
So when Joanne was talking about the blanket, do they think to un unfold the blanket to make it bigger? And so when they they don't do that, that's when Joanne steps in with a prompt. You know, it's first, can they do this? What is their idea like? Can they think of these things? Um, and then when you show them, this is an idea, you can do this. Now it's not praxis anymore. Mm -hmm. Now it's working from memory, which is a whole different part of the brain. Um, you're not thinking through and praxis is the, the thinking part, not the memory part. So um, I was teaching uh, one of the DIR classes one time and somebody presented a kid and said, in their profile, developmental profile of the child, they said, you know, their praxis is really good. They uh, like to take apart the soap dispenser in the bathroom and put it back together. And they love doing puzzles. But then there was something else in the presentation that uh, I saw the child missed something. And so I just, I wonder, do they do like lots of puzzles? Nope. They have one favorite puzzle that they do all the time and they're really good at it. That's curious. Why don't they do other mm -hmm. puzzles? And the soap thing, how did they figure that out? Oh, they saw the teacher do it one time. And so then they realized they could take it apart and did that. And I'm like, oh, so those aren't examples of praxis anymore, but they're demonstrations that the kid has pretty good visual processing maybe and is able to you know see something and pick up on it pretty quick to repeat it um but that's still not praxis because it's not unique they didn't have to figure it out and so how do you teach mm. you know that's that's kind of the key that you know your, your question is kind of getting to is how do we help somebody with that and it's not by giving them the idea because the whole point of praxis is the idea and how to make that happen yeah and and praxis the antithesis of praxis is practice right so the more you practice an activity the less praxis is involved right once you know driving from the clinic to my house obviously i wouldn't do it with my eyes closed but basically I probably could, right? Um, the only praxis involved is when, um, you know, the light is not at the right pace or there's extra traffic for some reason, right? So we can't, we, we actually can't teach praxis. By teaching, we are eliminating, by giving the steps, we are eliminating the opportunity for praxis. So a lot of times what I'll talk with families about and with clinicians about is facilitating praxis development. So we offer opportunities. Now in those opportunities, we might scaffold for low muscle tone. We might scaffold for um, sensory differences. We might scaffold for things outside of praxis so that the child is able to um, engage in in these activities and start developing those inklings of that thinking um i did a presentation and i'm, I'm working on 
on putting it together for um, a larger class about what praxis looks like at each capacity. And when we're talking about praxis at capacity one, um, so just self-regulation and interest in the world, the praxis that's involved is only that which is required to explore the world and access sensations, right? So there's very minimal praxis there. I have a, a beautiful video I found on YouTube of a baby figuring out how to suck her thumb. Started as complete reflex, right? She just accidentally brushed her cheek with her thumb. That rooting reflex came and then that suck reflex took over and then it became purposeful right? She was purposefully trying to put her hand in front of her mouth so that she could suck on her thumb. So um, as we look at capacity two and engagement, we have, um, we need sufficient praxis to participate in an activity with another person, right? To, to connect with them, to be available, to find them in the room, right, to um, copy what they're doing, to um, sit with them in an activity. Um, so I have a, a video of a, of a baby and a grandma, uh, and this is a teeny tiny, you know, six-month-old um, who's singing along to, with grandma, uh, and they're just in this lovely moment of engagement, face-to-face, -face, um, singing to each other. Um, now at capacity three, it really starts to, to ramp up because you have to anticipate the pattern, right? And, and implement the motor planning, implement the head turning, implement everything at a specific time, at a specific pace to keep that reciprocity going. And then at capacity four, we shared social problem solving. It's... It's possible without praxis, but it sure is hard and it requires so much scaffolding and support to occur. Um, and there's a, a video of me with one of my buddies um, in the training leader library where, man, this kid wanted the swing to be hung up so badly. He just really wants this swing hung up. And he, at this point, had, you know, maybe he was four years old and had about five consistent words that he could say, but amazing gestures. And he had no idea how that swing was going to go up, um, but he was able to connect through gestures and words um, what his problem was and that he wanted my help. Uh, and there I offered an opportunity for facilitation of praxis by not fixing the problem. Now, he had to be comfortable sitting in the distress of the problem not being solved. Um, and I was there supporting him, sitting beside him um, in distress. Um, but he was able to continue to try to figure out another way and ask for my opinion and get help from the grad student to try and hang that swing. And he did. He got it up there and got to swing and he was so happy. Um, and I would have absolutely deprived him of that if I had walked in the door and just fixed the problem for him. So a lot of what we do in facilitating praxis development is one, we have to make sure that the child is ready to sit in discomfort. If they're not ready to sit in discomfort, then, then that limits our options. And, and two, we, we wait, we sit back that watch, wait, wonder, 
Um, can I just sit with them in their discomfort as they try and come up with a new plan? Um, and, and I think, you know, the transition from, from capacities one, two, three to four, that's such a tricky jump because you go from being in the action, in the action, in the action to now I'm just going to sit beside you and you're going to bring the ideas to me. Yeah. Those first three capacities, a lot of times we'll refer to them as the sweat levels back when they used to be called levels, because we're doing a lot of the work to maintain that uh, regulation, to maintain engagement, to maintain that back and forth. And when we get to capacity four, that social problem solving, something you can't do by yourself, you need somebody else to make it happen. Um, that's where we get to transfer more of the work to whoever it is we're working with. It starts to become a more equal um, relationship, a more equal connection. And that is another reason why floor time is so good at this. Why it's so natural is you can't teach praxis, but you can harness curiosity and anticipation. But we can't make somebody curious either. So that's why this is uh, led by the individual that we're working with. I've got a lot of kids, like up to 30 that I work with, so I don't always say child. Um, so we we want to join them in their interests. What are they what do they like? What are they good at? Because those are going to be the things that they're naturally curious about so that we are able to, once we've established a relationship, the R in DIR, you know, can they sit there and handle that frustration or be comfortable? Well, when we don't feel alone, when we feel connected, that helps us be a little more resilient. So the, these are things that are all natural and fundamental to this model in a way that nothing else is. Mm -hmm. You know, th this puts us in a unique position to understand and support uh, and to help foster natural curiosity and wanting to explore and to let that happen so that the individuals we work with can be thinkers and not just doers. Mm -hmm. And then that starts to get into the, the mental health kind of part that um, I love and dealing with uh, the emotions around that and solving um, abstract problems. But even with those, even with emotional problems, our feelings have sensory components so even that still benefits with the help of an OT. I've got a 30-year-old now that I just um, referred mm -hmm. over, over here um, because he had an experience. Uh, he gets stuck um, on, on these ideas. He had an experience in the past. He had a connection, a relationship. That person went away, and now he wants somebody just like that person. They have to look just like them, have all the same likes, and that's the only way that they can be happy. And 
they don't have the capacity to reason their way out of that, especially when they're emotional. Mm -hmm. That really shakes that foundation to be able to think on. And so I just talked to the parents a couple of days ago and the, this past weekend has been really bad out of nowhere, right? Just suddenly he had a really rough time. Um, meltdowns was, you know, lashing out um, and talking about the same old stuff. And I said, is it really out of nowhere? Or there was an incident that happened earlier in the week where there was an accident and uh, this individual was scared that the police were going to be involved because of the accident and they would lose their job and go to jail, like these big catastrophic things. Well, then a couple of days later, they go into this um, rumination spiral that just escalates back to all the same thoughts and how horrible everything is. And so I said, well, is it really out of nowhere? Because of this thing that happened, this accident. And the mom said, well, that, you know, in the rumination spiral, um, they didn't mention that. And I said, no, but remember, this is a, this is a, a kid um, who has trouble connecting ideas. That's that FADC6, that logical part, bridging ideas together. So what I think was happening is because of his anxiety, he had physical sensations not really understanding what that meant or where they came from. It just feels bad. And then when you're feeling bad, you start thinking, uh-oh, what's bad stuff? And it goes straight to the big bad things in his life. Um, so that was, um, it, it made sense to me, but the, the parent was like, that doesn't make any sense. Um, so that higher level stuff it's still important and the physical sensations can still play a big part and hijack us so mm -hmm. it's it's the foundation mm -hmm. our body and how we experience the world everything builds on that emotions and abstract ideas and thinking um, so we all need that support and as dr barbara dunbar says back when they used to be called levels linger longer at lower levels i don't have to race up to logical thinking with this kid or reflective thinking why are you having these feelings um what he really needs is to feel safe and understand his body and to be able to get the sensory input he needs so that his baseline is less anxious so he can feel safer and less overwhelmed more of the time and that's all praxis too, and comes from what do you like? What are you good at? And we're in it together. So how do you do that? I can hear the parents saying, oh yeah, that, that's happening with my kid. So how do you linger longer at the lower capacities with this person who's having this rumination and rigidity and thinking? Well, I think 
it's not just lingering longer at lower levels in our interactions with the child or the individual. I think one of the things that is so beautiful about the capacities is it really lets us know what that individual has the capacity to do in that moment, which is why they're not called levels, right? It's what capacity do we have on a day where everything is going wrong for me and I spill my coffee and I get in a fender bender and I've woken up late and I forgot this report or whatever, right? My capacity is not going to be particularly high. My thinking is not going to be flexible. I am going to be very rigid. And all I can offer myself is the ability to go back to capacity one, get myself regulated and organized, get myself that cup of coffee that I needed, sit down in a quiet space, get myself back on track. Then I'm ready to engage and to be reciprocal and to do some shared social problem solving and so on. And we have to be able to assess where our kids are in that moment. And I, I, I feel so much that desire of, oh, there's a challenge. I mean, I remember reading my my oldest's um, reports coming back from a therapist and thinking, okay, here's my checklist of everything I'm going to work on. And I'm an OT and I'm going to handle this and I'm going to target this and I'm going to target this and I'm going to target this. What we can't target is developing um, the these capacities, right? We can't just teach um, shared social problem solving. We have to experience the, that in opportunity. So when I am engaging with my kid, you know, who maybe had a bad day, right? Then I'm not going to come barreling in at capacity six and saying, well, why do you feel that way? And what do you think would have happened if you had done X, Y, and Z? Because it's just not there. It's just not available. So um, understanding if we're going to linger longer at lower levels, we're linger we're keeping our expectations at capacity one two and three and when the child is ready and shows us those those glimmers of capacity four then we can keep going right but we sit in those levels as are those capacities as long as we need to sit in those capacities just like if i get up from my seat too fast after having a really rough day and i don't take that time to regulate myself I am not going to be my best self, right? So honoring that. And I, I get as a parent, it's so scary, you know, especially with our Andy, when um, when I felt like we were just always hanging at capacity one, two, and three, and that clock is ticking, that age keeps going up yeah. and those the grade level keeps going up. Yeah, your um, dude's into some pretty cool stuff now. Oh no, mine, he's amazing. He's- and that's all built. It's on built that. on those capacities because we stuck at capacity one, two, three, four for a really long time. And I kept changing my expectations, even as, you know, family members and, and other parents and teachers were saying, move it on, keep going, keep going. And I kept in my, my therapeutic gut sense and my mom gut sense saying, no, let's hang back. Let's hang back. Let's hang back. Yes, you can do advanced math and you can read at you know a college level. That's lovely, fantastic, congratulations. Social, emotionally, developmentally, we're gonna hang here. I'll give you all the Greek mythology you want and you can read it and analyze and look at patterns and have fun with that. 
but we're going to, we're going to connect at capacities one, two, three, and four. And only because we were able to hang at, at those capacities five through 12 are gradually falling into place. Uh, it reminds me of, you know, that old school solitaire, yeah. you know, and like, if you just put that one last card in place, everything would just go, right? That's what it feels like. Um, and and as the parent sitting in the discomfort of not knowing if your child is going to develop the way that we would hope, um, we're the ones who have to um, shore up our capacities so that we can sit in the discomfort of everyone else's kids are doing X, Y, and Z. And we're okay with where our kid is in this moment on this day and as they are. So I've got, I think this may be an example to help explain this. At least it works in my mind. Um, so the first thing I think is you said praxis comes from the Latin for doing? Greek. Greek. Mm -hmm. Okay. For doing. Um, Jackie Bartell always points out that we're not human doings. We're human beings so if somebody is really struggling how do we john use the word opportunities i love that how do we create opportunities for them to be curious right because we can't teach this directly we have to get them on board they have to be interested so um here's a Praxis example. I used to work in early intervention, went to a family's house one time, first visit, and the mom was coming home for the visit too. Kid was home with dad. So this is a two year old. Um, gets to the door, knock on the door. The kid thinks it's mom. Comes, runs the door, opens the door, sees me, screams, cries, runs. Um, dad scoops the kid up and says, No, it's okay. It's, and I just grab the door and slam it on myself. So, you know, I hear the kid crying, I wait, and, you know, 30, 45 seconds, the crying goes down. And so I knock on the door and I open the door again and the kid starts crying again. So I slam the door on myself. This time the crying is only like 15 or 20 seconds. So I knock on the door again. This time I open it really slow. I don't hear any crying. Open it. I peek in just a little bit and the kid turns and looks at his dad real quick. So I slam the door on myself. I knocked on the door again. Didn't hear anything. Open the door slow. Open the door. Peek in. And the kid looks up at his dad and kind of smiles a little bit and then looks back at me. And so, can I come in? Kid didn't say or do anything. So this time, instead of slamming the door, I just gently closed it again. And it was within two or three more minutes, I knocked on the door and the kid came over and opened the door took my hand and led me into the house. So it wasn't reasoning with the kid. It wasn't the dad saying, you know, it's okay. It's Mr. Mike. He's come. There was a violation of expectations. The kid had an idea that didn't work out. Not understanding what went wrong is terrifying. What if your world is just chaos? And this is what's supposed to happen. And that doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen all the time. What a horrible way to live. So I wanted to 
showed this kid that it can trust me. I'm going to be predictable. And so any sign mm -hmm. that I get, I respond to. And then the kid understood that, wait, he's not making me do something I don't want to do. This isn't scary. I can make a sound or look and it stops. So I created that opportunity just by being. I wasn't trying to work up any levels, wasn't trying to create um, learning opportunities or whatever. I, I wanted a relationship. I wanted this kid to be able to feel safe with, who is this dude? I don't know what's going to happen. He could come in and it could be horrible, but wait. He just showed that, you know, I'm, I, I have some control in this. And I'm not saying that the kid had all those high level understandings, but the experience was that it was becoming predictable. And so he was okay being a little uncomfortable. So he was starting to get the praxis of what was discomfort happening. in small doses, making things predictable, giving that opportunity to be curious, like, is he going to knock again? Is he going to knock again? Um, whereas if you had just knocked and came in the first time, there was no opportunity to build that curiosity up and that anticipation. Um, Mike and the parents sparker, but I also liked how you said there's a, a lot of our kids for a lot of our kids, there's a now and a not now. Now is safe. Not now is what we don't know. And so that gets into trying to make things more predictable. Um, it's a, and that's real a really high level idea too. That's FADC six. That's logical thinking and, you know, connecting ideas. That's when we start to understand time. So, well, and I'm 53 with significant ADHD. So I don't really understand time that well. Still, um, I lose time and wait, what happened? That was a week ago. What happened? Um, yeah, so it, it's just now and not now is a not now is a scary idea because thirty seconds. What is a thirty second? It's not now, so it may as well be a million years. <laughs> um, so yeah, another way to start working on that is instead of talking about time, which is a minute, is really abstract. You can't touch one, you can't see one, um, but uh, you know your favorite video on YouTube, that last five minutes, oh, Mike's going to be here for one more uh, Blues Clues or whatever. That way we can attach to that emotional idea that can help us feel safe and carry us through. Well, speaking of having uh, skewed views of time, you guys have a client in two minutes. So <laughs> are there any last words that we want to drop in about praxis. I think, yeah, I think when, for us as parents, uh, and again, this is my tendency to, is just the reminder that you don't teach it, you provide opportunities. It, as soon as we start teaching praxis, we're, we're eliminating the child's ability to, to develop that skill. So offering opportunities, um, they don't have to do it that way unless that way is unsafe. So allowing that unstructured time, allowing the opportunity to try and fail and try again another way. 
I do and summer camps, summer adventure camps, week-long sleepaway camps with um, Matt Winetta with Airy Experiences. Um, and if he's if he walks by and he sees me with a kid and I'm showing them how to do something or doing something for somebody, I'll just hear off in the distance as he walks by, thief. He says, you just stole an opportunity. And a lot of times it's my anxiety that's doing that. What? How do I feel if this kid is unsuccessful? And that's what I so. wanted to point out is that's where a lot of the challenge for so many parents lies because we are so uncomfortable with our kids melting down and seeing them upset and we're walking on eggshells. We end up doing everything for them instead of giving them little bits of frustration tolerance, I think as Dr. Greenspan worded it, letting them be in control, like Mike's example of slamming the door and waiting. So they're, they're in control because when they go, ah, you slam the door, giving them that sense of control, giving them that sense of predictability and lots and lots of opportunities. So we'll wrap it up for there, but I'm almost thinking that we have a follow-up podcast with lots of examples and I can go through a zillion with my son um, and I'll, I'll put it out to members of Affect Autism. Do you have questions for Joan and Mike? And we will do a follow-up podcast and go into some more specific examples. Thank you both so much. Thank you so much. And uh, can't wait to have you back. Thanks, Daria. This is always fun. Yep. Enjoyed it. Until next time, here's to choosing play and experiencing joy every day. If you're a caregiver looking to implement your own floor time approach, please see the parents menu at ICDL.com, the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning for the virtual floor time consultations for parents. There you can schedule an appointment, look at the virtual DIR home program services, and see the weekly parent support meetings registration. We aim to help you implement the developmental individual differences relationship-based model at home, taking into account where your child is developmentally and their individual sensory processing differences within your safe and nurturing relationship to promote and support their developmental potential.